Section 5 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Matea Bracic. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers by Albert Hubbard, William Godwin, and Mary Wollstonecraft. Part 1. If children are to be educated to understand the true principle of patriotism, their mother should be a patriot, and the love of mankind from which an orderly train of virtues springs can only be produced by considering the moral and civil interest of the race. Woman should be prepared by education to become the companion of man, or she will stop the progress of knowledge, for truth must be common to all, or it will be inefficacious with respect to its influence on general practice. Mary Wollstonecraft. Others may trace the love tales of milkmaids and farmhands. I deal with the people who have made their mark upon the times, people who have tinted the world's thought fabric and to whose genius we are all heirs. And the reason the story of their love is vital to us is because their love was vital to them. Thought is born of parents, and literature is the child of married minds. So this, then, is the love story of William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft. History and literature are very closely related. If one sets down the chief events in political history and over against these writes the names of the radical authors and orators of the time, he cannot but be convinced that literature leads and soldiers and politicians are puppets tossed on the tide of time. A thought well expressed is a bomb that explodes indefinitely. Two men, Rousseau and Voltaire, lighted the fuse that created the explosion known as the French Revolution. Luther's books and sermons brought about the Reformation. Thomas Paine's little book, The Crisis, of which half a million copies were printed and distributed from Virginia to Maine, stirred the colonists to the sticking point. And George Washington, who was neither a writer nor an orator, paid Letters and Truth the tribute of saying... Without the pamphlets of Thomas Paine, the hearts and minds of the people would never have been prepared to respond to our call for troops. No one disputes now that it was a book written by a woman, of which a million copies were sold in the North, that prepared the way for Lincoln's call for volunteers. Literature and oratory are arsenals that supply the people their armament of reasons. And through the use of exercise of these borrowed reasons, we learn to create new ones for ourselves. Thinkers prepare the way for thinkers, and every John the Baptist uttering his cry in the wilderness is heard, and the fate of John the Baptist and the fate of the man whom he preceded are typical of the fate of all who are bold enough to carry the standard of revolt into the camp of the entrenched enemy. The cross is a mighty privilege, and only the sublimely great are able to pay the price at which hemlock is held. Buddha said that the finest word in any language is equanimity. This is a paradox, and like every paradox, implies that the reverse is equally true. Equanimity in the face of opposition, steadfastness in time of stress, and wise and useful purpose are truly godlike. And there is only one thing worth fighting for, talking for, or writing for, and all literature and all oratory have this for their central theme, freedom. It was only freedom that could lure Cincinnatus from his plough, or Lincoln from his law office. And so Mary Wollstonecraft's book, The Rights of Woman, was the first strong, earnest, ringing word on the subject. She summed up the theme once and for all, just as an essay by Herbert Spencer anticipates and answers every objection, exhausting the theme. 
and that the author had a whimsical touch of humour in her composition is shown in that she dedicates the book to that prince of woman-haters, Talleyrand, late Bishop of Autumn. Political Justice by William Godwin was published in 1793. The work, on its first appearance, created a profound impression among English-thinking people, although orthodoxy has almost succeeded in smothering it in silence since John Stuart Mill declared that this book created an epoch and deserved to rank with Milton's speech for unlicensed printing, Locke's essay on human understanding, or Jean-Jacques Emile. That it was a positive force in Mill's own life he always admitted. However, it is only within our own time, only in fact since 1876, that the views of Godwin as expressed in political justice have been adopted by the spirit of Christendom. Godwin believed in the perfectibility of the race and proved that man's career has been a constant movement forward. That is, there never was a fall of man. Man has always fallen upward, and when he has kicked the ball, it has always been toward the goal. Godwin believed that it was well to scan the faults of our fellows closely in order to see, forsooth, whether they are not their virtues. The belief that mankind should by nature tend to evil he considered absurd and unscientific, for the strongest instinct in all creation is self-preservation, and that certain men should love darkness rather than light was mainly because governments and religions have warped man's nature through oppression and coercion until it no longer acts normally. Normal man seeks the light, just as the flowers do. Man, if not too much interfered with, will make for him the best possible environment and create for his children right conditions because the instinct for peace and liberty is deeply rooted in his nature. Control by another has led to revolt, and revolt has led to oppression, and oppression occasions grief and deadness. Hence bruises and distortion follow. When we view humanity, we behold not the true and natural man, but a deformed and pitiable product, undone by the vices of those who have sought to improve our nature by shaping his life to feed the vanity of a few and minister to their wantonness. In our plans for social betterment, let us hold in mind the healthy and unfettered man, and not the cripple that interference and restraint have made. Godwin, like Robert Ingersoll, was the son of a clergyman, which reminds me that liberal thought is under great obligations to the clergy, since their sons, taught by antithesis, are often shining lights of radicalism. Godwin was a non-resistant, philosophic anarchist. He was the true predecessor of George Eliot, Walt Whitman, Henry Thoreau and Leo Tolstoy, and the best that is now being expressed from advanced Christian... Sorry, and the best that is now being expressed from advanced Christian pulpits harks back to him. All that the foremost of our contemporary thinkers have written and said was suggested and touched upon by William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft, with like conclusions. Carnegie is credited with this. There is only one generation between shirt-sleeves and shirt-sleeves. Now the grandfather of Mary Wollstonecraft was an employing weaver who did his work so well that his wares commanded a price. He grew rich, and when he died he left a fortune of some £30,000, not being able to take it with him. This fortune descended to his eldest son. Samuel Johnson thought the law of primogeniture a most excellent thing, since it ensured there being only one fool in the family. The Wollstonecraft boys, who had no money, went to work, and in taking care of themselves became strong, sturdy, and prosperous men. The one who succeeded to the patrimony was at first a gentleman, 
then a shabby genteel, and at forty his time was taken up with schemes to dodge the debtor's prison, and with plans to pay off the national debt, for it seems that men who cannot manage their own affairs are not deterred thereby from volunteering to look after those of the nation. It appears also that Mr. Wollstonecraft wrote a book entitled How to Command Success, and by its sale hoped to retrieve the fortune now lost, but alas, he ran in debt to the printer, and finally sold the copyright to that worthy of five shillings, and on the proceeds got plain drunk. The family moved as often as landlords demanded, which is about every three months. There were three girls in the family, Mary, Everina, and Eliza, all above the average in intelligence. Whether there is any such thing in nature as justice for the individual is a question, but cosmic justice is beyond cavil. The stupidity of a parent is often a very precious factor in the evolution of his children. He teaches them by antithesis. So if a man cannot be useful and strong, all is not lost. He can still serve humanity as a horrible example, like the honest hobo who volunteered to pay the farmer for his dinner by acting as a scarecrow. Children of drunkards make temperance fanatics, and those who have a shiftless father stand a better chance of developing into financiers than if they had a parent who has set them up in business, stand between them and danger, and meet the deficit. Women married to punk husbands need not be discouraged, nor should husbands with nagging wives be cast down, for was it not Emerson who said, It is better to be a nettle in the side of your friend than his echo? Thus do all things work together for good whether you love the Lord or not. The Wollstonecraft family transversed London with their handcart from Chelsea to East End. They also roamed through Essex, Yorkshire and Kent. When matters became strained, they fell back on London, paid one month's rent in advance and then stayed three, when their goods and chattels were gently landed on the curb and the handcart came in handy. As the girls grew up, they worked at weaving, served as house-girls and nurses, and finally Mary became a governess in the family of Lord Kingsborough, an Irish nobleman. This gave her access to her employer's library, and she went at it as a hungry colt enters a clover-field. Not knowing how long her good fortune would last, she eagerly improved her time. She wrote frequent letters to her sisters, telling what she was doing and what she was reading. She was eminently superior to any of the females in the family and acknowledged it. A tutor in the house taught her French, and whether the nobleman's children learned much or not we do not know, but Mary soon equalled her teacher. Knowledge is a matter of desire. The next year the Wollstonecraft girls opened a private school, a kind of young ladies' establishment, quite on the Mrs. Nickleby order, and indeed if a Micawber had been waiting, Mary knew where to look for him. About this time, Mary met Ursa Major, who may have treated men very rudely, but not your petite, animated and clever women. Dr. Johnson quite liked little Mary Wollstonecraft. She matched her wit against his and put him on his mettle, and when Mary once expressed a desire to become an authoress, he encouraged her by saying, Yes, my dear, you should write, for that is the way to learn. And no matter how badly you write, you can always be encouraged by finding men who write worse. And another time he said, Women have quite as much interest in life as men, and see things just as clearly, and why they should not write the last word as well as speak it, I do not know. That settled it with Mary. She gave up her part in the school. 
and very soon after the sisters gave up theirs, one of them wedding a ne'er-do-well scion of nobility, and the other marrying an orthodox curate with a hair-lip. Through the help of Dr. Johnson, Mary got a position as proofreader with a publisher. Here her knowledge of French was valuable, and she assisted in translations. Then she became literary adviser and reader for different publishers. She was making money, and had accumulated a little fortune of near a hundred pounds by the sweat of her brain. Her close acquaintanceship with printers and publishers thus placed her where she became acquainted with several statesmen who had speeches to make, and for these she constructed arguments, and also helped them out of dire difficulties by rounding out their periods, and by introducing flights of fancy for men whose fancies were wingless. On her own account she had written various stories and essays. She had met the wits and thinkers of London, and had learned to take care of herself. She was an honest, industrious, and highly intelligent woman, and commanded the respect of those who knew her best. To know her, says Godwin in his memoirs, was to love her, and those who did not love her did not know her. Of course she was an exceptional person, for have I not intimated that she was a thinker? This was over a hundred years ago, and thinkers were as scarce then as now, for even so-called educated folk, for the most part, only think that they think. Frederick Harrison did not stray far afield when he referred to Charlotte Perkins Gilman as a reincarnation of Mary Wollstonecraft. Mary Wollstonecraft had translated Rousseau's Emile into English, and had read Voltaire closely and with appreciation. The momentous times of 1792 were on in Paris. That mob of women, ragged and draggled, had tramped out to Versailles, and Marie Antoinette, a foolish girl who rattled around in a place that should have been occupied by a queen, had looked out the window and propounded her immortal question. What do they want? Bread, was the answer. Why don't they eat cake? asked her chatterbox. Mary Wollstonecraft was a revolutionary by nature. Looking about her, she saw London seething with swarms of humanity just one day's rations removed from starvation. A few miles away, she saw acres upon acres, thousands of acres, kept and guarded for private parks and game preserves. Then it was that she supplied Henry George that phrase, man is a land animal. And she fully comprehended that the question of human rights will never be ended until we settle the land question. She said, man is a land animal and to deprive the many of the right to till the soil is like depriving fishes of the right to swim in the sea. You force fish into a net, and they cease to thrive. You entrap men through economic necessity in cities, and allow a few to control the land, and you perpetuate ignorance and crime. And eventually you breed a race of beings who take no joy in nature, never having gotten acquainted with her. The problem is not one of religion, but of common sense in economics. Back to the land. Of course, a writing woman who could think like this was deeply interested in the unrest across the Channel. And so Mary packed up and went over to Paris, lured by three things. A curiosity concerning the great social experiment being there worked out, an ambition to perfect herself in the French language by speaking only French, a writer's natural thirst for good copy. In all these things, the sojourn of Mary Wollstonecraft in Paris was an eminent success, but tragedy was lurking and lying in wait for her, and it came to her as it has come for women ever since time began, through that awful handicap, her nature's crying need for affection. In Paris, martial law reigned supreme. 
In the street, the death tumbrel rattled, and through a crack in the closed casement, Mary Wollstonecraft peered cautiously out and saw Louis XVI riding calmly to his death. The fact that she was an Englishwoman brought Mary Wollstonecraft under suspicion, for the English sympathised with royalty. When men with bloody hands come to your door and question you concerning your business and motives, the mind is not ripe for literature. The letters Mary Wollstonecraft had written for English journals she now destroyed, since she could not mail them, and to keep them was to run the risk of having them misinterpreted. The air was full of fear and fever. No one was allowed to leave the city unless positively necessary, and to ask permission to go was to place oneself under surveillance. End of section 5